today. Um, I told the team earlier, we're not just celebrating us moving to a new location, even though we are celebrating that, but we're celebrating all that God has done right here in this building. Amen. We've seen souls come to know Jesus here. We've seen folk get baptized here. We've seen folks find freedom from bondage and things that were holding them bound. So we praise God today for all that he's done here in this place through you, through his people here uh, at Epiphany Church in Wilmington, Delaware at 903 North West Street. So, but we're, we're also praising God for what he's about to do. Amen. Amen. It's easy to praise God for where he's at right now, but when you look to look forward to what God will do, that means you have to have expectation in your heart and expectancy knowing that God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Amen? Amen. All right, all right. I don't want to get started too early, so let me get over here, calm myself down. But I'm just excited, like super, super excited. I don't know if I have giddiness, like Carlin said, but I'm definitely happy. <laughs> Amen. So this is our last week um, in this building, but also our last week in this series uh, called Hidden Figures. You guys been enjoying this series? Amen. 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 So um, we have been exploring um, several stories of, uh, of women in the life and genealogy of Jesus. Uh, as, as a result, it revealed to us the the various ways that those women were misunderstood and or marginalized. Um, through these stories, we witness the way the biblical narrative was uniquely communicated through their lives, and we are reminded to listen and learn from other perspectives. Where the culture may have silenced or rejected these women, their inclusion in Jesus' genealogy and his elevation of them during his life and his ministry gives us a guide for using our own influence and privilege and power to build up the marginalized in our own lives. Amen? So that's where we've been. That's where we're going to continue to trek. I'll be uh, in a, a passage in Second Samuel today. Um, I'm going to be in the whole chapter, uh, but I'm going to focus in on verses 26 through 27, okay? And I've got a message title for you today as Hidden Power. Amen? Hidden Power. Hear these words of our Father once I get to it in my Bible. See, y'all ain't praying enough over there. That's why this is not supposed to be praying. Okay. <laughs> Verse 26 says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Father, bless these your words. God, speak truth to us today. God, may we hear from you today. 
God, I pray, God, that as we close out this series, God, may we not forget about the marginalized in our lives, God. God, and would you use us and empower us to use the hidden power that you have given to each and every one of us to have an impact in the lives of people throughout this city, throughout this country, and throughout the world. So it's in the name of Jesus Christ that I pray that you would stand in my body and think through my mind and speak through my mouth and let the words of my mouth and meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. My Lord, my strength, and my Redeemer, in whom I place all of my trust. And the whole church says, Amen, Amen, Amen. Y'all all right? All right, cool, cool, cool. We good. So the Me Too movement, anybody heard about that Me Too movement? Yeah, okay. You've been under a rock if you haven't. Um, but the Me Too movement later spawned another movement just like it called Hashtag Church Two movement. It was a hashtag that brought together women who had been abused and had their abuse covered up in the church. It's a heartbreaking reality that sexual abuse goes on in our communities, but also in our churches. The silence is not spiritual. There's another hashtag. Uh, silence is not spiritual campaign began and run by evangelical women attempts to address the issue and call churches to a more proactive approach towards combating sexual abuse inside of the church. In a statement by Kate uh, Shelnut, who's one of the leaders in the movement, she, she, she said that we have an opportunity to partner with God in his redemptive work in our communities and our churches, pushing back against cultural attitudes of exploitation. So one of the causes of this widespread problem is the way we approach stories like the one of David and Bathsheba. We've often read it as if Bathsheba was some type of temptress. We've read the story as if she was just, as my grandma would say, being fast, out there bathing on the roof. Like, who bathes on the roof? But we, we've, we've shifted the story to see Bathsheba as some type of temptress who was bathing provocatively near the king and as a willing participant in David's adultery. However, a closer story, a closer study tells us a different story. See, the, the Hebrew translated as bathing has a variety of meanings that could include uh, washing one's hands. See, there's, there's nothing clearly communicating that Bathsheba was acting in an intentionally seductive way towards David. And it is possible that this bathing was also for the purpose of ritual purification. And it would therefore advertise Bathsheba's charm. She had to bathe herself ritually at times, as women had to do in that time. But we don't explicitly know what was going on here. But we assume that because this was a woman bathing on the roof, that she was somehow being a seductress and that she was tempting King David. That's what we do with women. We assume upon them evil. 
we assume upon them that they have ulterior motives when it relates to men who have a little bit of power and authority. But when we read this, we, we, we misread it often, uh, but particularly during this time in context, this cultural context, a woman summoned by the king was unable to refuse. She had no ability to say no. And once we understand that the power dynamics at play, it's clear that Bathsheba could not have truly been a willing participant. Because if she had said no, it wouldn't have made any difference whatsoever. And this misunderstanding of Bathsheba infects, and I'm I'm laying out a foundation for us. It infects the way that we think about other issues of sexual assault and rape. We say stuff like, well, she should have been wearing a longer dress. Her shorts were too tight. She had her bosom all hanging out. That's why that happened to her. Now, I'm not arguing against modesty because I believe that modesty is biblical and you should be modest. But when we take those those standards of modesty and we apply them to situations where sexual abuse has happened, we misuse and abuse image bearers of God. Andy Crouch, uh, he's an author, he offers a helpful tool for helping us to think about abuses of power and how they come about. He uses uh, sort of a a, a two-by-two grid, uh, one with authority on one side and vulnerability on the other. Authority has to do with how much ability you have to exert change in the world. And vulnerability has to do with your exposure to risk or weakness. So this grid helps us understand that humans We're intended to have both. We're intended to have authority and vulnerability. And see, when we understand that, then we can truly flourish, particularly in our relationships. When when we understand that our relationships call us to have true uh, vulnerability with one another, but at the same time have authority over our own person and our our own individualism, then we can really truly have relationships that will flourish and thrive. So, but this grid helps us understand that and, and, and cultural systems that seek to give some people more authority than others will inevitably load the vulnerability they are trying to get rid of on to other populations. Here's what I mean. It's clear that those who don't properly deal with their own vulnerability will load onto others the vulnerability that they don't want to deal with. And if we don't deal with our own vulnerabilities, the dynamics at play in this passage become clear because someone like David, who had very little vulnerability and a whole lot of authority, could then abuse the vulnerability of a woman like Bathsheba because she had no authority. But see, Jesus, Jesus became the embodiment of that inversion of power dynamics by elevating and teaching women 
defending the poor and the powerless and revealing the unrighteousness of some of the most powerful people in his society. See, Jesus wasn't afraid to speak truth to power. Jesus wasn't afraid to speak up to those who were in positions of authority and declare to them, he who was without sin, let him throw the first stone. See, Jesus, in Mark chapter 5, he heals a hemorrhaging woman who would have been considered unclean to him as a rabbi. And watch this. Here's what he calls her, this unclean woman who he should have not have any interaction with, who he shouldn't have come near to him. He calls her daughter. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus rebukes the greed of the wealthy And he elevates the gift of the widow. And as opposed to Bathsheba's story of abuse by David, the son of David would break cultural norms to speak to a Samaritan woman in public in John chapter 4. And see, the woman at the well, she is surprised by Jesus' willingness to engage in conversation with her. Isn't that a mess? She was surprised that Jesus would even talk to her. As if she were some lesser form of a human being. If she were some lesser form of, of, of a creation than he was. The idea that women are inherently seductive isn't just one that we read in the story of Bathsheba and David. As modern readers, but Jewish cultural norms upheld the same ideas. Some Pharisees now refer to. This is so stupid. (laughs) They're referred to as the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. Listen to this foolishness. These Pharisees were so insistent on not looking at a woman in public, that they would literally walk around with their eyes covered, over with their hands covered over their face if they saw a woman in their presence. And they would go bumping and knocking into things and getting knocked out. And then they became known as the bruised and bleeding Pharisees. That kind of stuff happens today, too. I've had so many conversations. My wife and I, we'd be at an event, and I'd be standing there talking to a young lady who we both knew. And um, friends of mine who were good friends of mine, they walk up to me and say, hey, bro, like, you might want to be careful talking talking to that girl. You know what I mean? She's single. And I'm like, Okay. (laughs) <laughs> what, what does that mean? Like, she's a human. My my wife is right there. Like, what what y'all talking about? Well intentioned, trying to guard me, but the the mentality that lowers the value, the intrinsic value of women in our culture is still a prevalent reality today. So, Jesus. In a culture that prized this kind of supposed piety, Jesus was personal 
and intentional with women. Instead of abusing his power, which was infinite and total, we abuse our power that is finite and, and doesn't even last too long. We get voted out of office and our power is gone. We lose our job and our power is gone. We lose, the, we lose uh, uh, our money and all of our power is, is dissipated. But Jesus had infinite and total power. He, instead of abusing it, he became a model. Watch this. For us laying down our power. Whatever that, that might look like. He becomes a model for us of laying down our power for the sake of the most vulnerable in our society. So my first idea is this. If we are going to discover the hidden power of the marginalized, then we must lay down our power. We have to lay down our own power. See, here I want you to see in verse 26, I want us to see man's predicament. I'm standing on the cord. A predicament is a difficult or unpleasant or embarrassing situation. Here in verse 26, y'all with me? Verse 26, it says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. See, Uriah's name means Jehovah is light. In other words, light being a metaphor for revelation. See, Uriah was a righteous man. He would not go and eat and drink like David had tried to convince him in verse 11. He wouldn't go and eat and drink and go lay down with his wife. He said, I will not do this thing as long as my brothers are out there fighting and the ark of God is out there. He was a righteous man. He would not go and enjoy the pleasures of the flesh while his brothers were out there fighting a spiritual battle. See, righteousness, here's what I want us to see. Righteousness is the revelation of God. See, when we stand up for righteousness in our community, in our country, in our culture, we reveal God to those who don't know him. When we stand up for the truth, when we stand up for righteousness, we reveal God to those who don't know him. And we desire for everyone in the city of Wilmington and the world that they would come to know God through loving the word. Y'all supposed to know that part already. (laughs) It's up there. But even though Uriah was a righteous man, he would be defrauded. And ultimately put to death. By a man who was in authority over him and should have been there to serve and protect him. See, the same is true in our culture today. Public servants who should be serving the interests of the vulnerable in our society all for political and monetary gain, they are defrauding young men and women in vulnerable conditions. Y'all with me in here? See, those in authority who are supposed to serve and protect are putting young men and women in vulnerable situations that at times lead to death. See, we need righteousness to prevail when vulnerability is present. 
See, we need the righteousness of God to to prevail in our hearts and in our lives when the vulnerable and when vulnerability is present in our lives. We cannot sit idly by when the vulnerable are being marginalized continuously by those who are supposed to be serving and protecting them and those who are supposed to be public servants. We need to speak up against the injustices and the unrighteousness that exists in our communities. He says that when she, when, when, when Uriah, when his wife found out that he was dead, uh, see this, the word here it talks about being executed or put to death prematurely. So when it comes to the imbalance of power dynamics in communities, it can be clearly seen that the light of Jehovah—that's what Uriah's name means—when when. when when, when the imbalance of power is in our communities, it can be clearly seen that the light of God has been executed in our communities. In other words, any place where you see divergent power dynamics, you can be sure that the revelation of God has been executed in that place. See, there's no secret that our community, our country, and our culture, they've stopped listening to God. We've stopped seeing the light of God, and in fact, we have done our very best to kill the light of God in our communities. So she mourned him. And anytime the revelation of God is executed in the culture, the people of God should well and lament, just like Bathsheba did for her husband. But here's our predicament. We have not properly, properly lamented the loss of God in our culture and community. In fact, we have become comfortable with the execution of the revelation of God in our culture. That's why we won't lay down our power for the sake of the vulnerable. That's why we won't give up our privilege for the sake of the marginalized. That is why we won't speak truth to power in our communities for the sake of the vulnerable. See, the light of of Yahweh has left our culture and we sit by quietly arguing about whether the church plays the kind of songs that we want to hear on Sunday morning. The revelation of God has gone out from our culture and we sit around and debate whether it's necessary or not for us to be regular attenders in the community of God. The light of God has left our country and we sit around and debate about red states versus blue states. We need to wake up and recognize our predicament and strive to gain the Lord's perspective. And that's my next idea in verse 27. If we are going to lay down our power, we must gain the Lord's perspective. Verse 27. It says, when the time of mourning ended, watch what David did. He had her brought to his house. Now, he had saw her bathing on the roof. He sent for her. That's the first time he sent for her to come to him so that he could sleep with her. And when after he slept with her, she sent word to him that she was now pregnant. Go figure. The godmom would say, you have sex, you have a baby. Duh. (laughs) 
But she sends word to David, and she tells him, I'm pregnant. So David, instead of being an honorable man, instead of being a righteous man and owning up to what he had done, here's what he does. He goes and he tries to cover it up. He says, bring Uriah here and let Uriah come home, and I'm going to send Uriah over to his wife so that he can eat and drink and go lay with her. And then by the time it comes back, we won't be able to tell who the baby father is like an episode of Maury. See, because if he gets here, he can get there, and then we won't be able to know, and no one will be none the wiser. But Uriah was a righteous man, and he said, nah, I'm not going to do that. My brothers are out here fighting. The ark of God is out here. I'm not finning to do that. I said finning. Because that's what Israelites and Hittites spoke like. They said finning. <laughs> I don't know. Sorry. I guess that's appropriate Hebrew. Finning. Um, so he, he said, no, I'm not going to do that. And so David had to continue the scheme. So he sent word to the general to say, send Uriah the Hittite to the front line where the battle is most fierce. That way I know for sure that he'll be killed. David, the one who was after the heart of God, was a murderer. See, Bathsheba mourned the death of her husband with passionate expressions of grief and sorrow. We don't lament and mourn the loss of righteousness and justice in our culture with any type of passionate expression. We give flat platitudes about how sorry we are for the plight of poor kids in the inner city who don't have clean clothes to wear to school in the morning while our kids get rewarded with new clothes and new shoes and new games and new stuff for having accomplished nothing. See, we, we've got to learn to properly lament the loss of justice in our culture and in our communities. Dr. Soon Chan Ra, if you haven't read his book, Prophetic Lament, A Call to Justice in Troubled Times, you need to go on your phone on Amazon right now and order that joint and read it. He says this in his book, Prophetic Lament. He says, the American church avoids lament. The power of lament is minimized and the underlying narrative of suffering that requires lament is lost but absence doesn't make the heart grow fonder in this sense absence makes the heart forget see the absence of lament in the literature of of the american church results in the loss of memory we forget the necessity of lamenting over suffering and pain in, in our communities, and we forget the reality of suffering and pain in our communities. 
So when we don't properly lament, when we don't properly mourn the injustices in our community, when we don't properly lament those things, what happens is, is we find ourselves moving out somewhere else and being comfortable and saying, that's their problem. We find ourselves forgetting about the fact about how God raised us up while we were once in a place of marginalization and he drew us out of the muck and the mire and he saved us and planted our feet on solid ground. We act like that didn't happen. And we forget about the pain and suffering of those in marginalization. We must truly lament the suffering in our city and mourn the loss of justice for those hidden figures all around us. So when the time of mourning had ended um, or it came came to pass or it passed over, um, this time of mourning, it comes to an end. However, it comes to an end so that we can take action. See, when our mourning stops, that doesn't mean that we begin to celebrate. Yeah, God, see, I made it out the hood. And now I'm living good. But wait a minute. There's still some more folks that are living in the hood who ain't living so good. And the main reason they're not living so good is because they don't realize that there's another way to live. And if we don't point them to a a newness of life that is in Christ, then they'll never have the realization that they can live a new life. So when the time of mourning ends, we've got to take action. And if we continue to just talk about injustice in our city and never take action to see injustice be removed, our mourning, this word means it becomes invalidated or obsolete. See, Lament challenges the church to acknowledge real suffering and plead with God for intervention. See, when we when we truly lament suffering, when we truly lament the hidden power of the marginalized, it will lead us to take intervention by pleading to God to step in. But here's the danger. We must be aware of the tendency to view the holistic work of the church as the action of the privileged towards the marginalized. Here's what I mean. We oftentimes think that we've got to go help those poor people. That's not what, that's not what Jesus is saying to us. We have something to learn from marginalized communities as well. See, in his book further, Dr. Soon Chan Ra talks about the difference between uh, non-Western Christian communities and Western Christian communities and how their worship is looked at as subpar or inferior to other Western forms of worship because they don't understand what that worship looks like. So in one sense, they'll elevate the the unique worship of the French uh, in French communities because they're Western, but they'll look down on 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 Koreans and the way that they worship. 
So we have to we have to pull back on our tendency to see the 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 work of ministry being from the privileged to the marginalized. It's not what Jesus wants us to do. Jesus wants us to be united to the marginalized so that we can worship together with the marginalized. And see, when we have this idea that the holistic work of the church is an action of the privilege towards the marginalized, that often derails the work of true community healing. See, we think that we're after some reconciliation, like racial reconciliation is a buzzword right now. Like in all of our in, in, in evangelical churches, it's a buzzword. Like we want reconciliation, yeah. Like, but nobody is really doing any work of true healing in communities because we're not willing to move towards one another and truly learn from one another. What we do is continue to colonialize peoples and tell them that if you're going to truly worship God, you've got to worship Him like this, all Hillsongy and whatnot. I like Hillsong, but singing Hillsong don't make you Christian. So ministry in urban contexts, acts of justice, and racial reconciliation require a deeper engagement with one another. An engagement that acknowledges the suffering of the marginalized rather than just glossing over it. I got to move. We cannot move into the realm of reconciliation and discovering the hidden power of the marginalized, hear me, without repentance. We don't talk about repentance in church like that no more. But we have to repent of the ways in which we have misused our authority towards the vulnerable. And we must call those in authority to repentance for the acts that they have committed against the marginalized. And we have to repent of our ignorance of the marginalized in our community. We can't just move on as if the, as if we have not somehow perpetuated their marginalization. Here's what David did. David, after she finished mourning her husband, the man who he, whom he had killed, David went and brought her into his house as if he had nothing to do with her mourning. See, the word here, for, when it says that he brought her in, the word, it has the sense that he was collecting Bathsheba. Here's what it means. We love to do the same thing with the marginalized today. We love to collect them. What do you mean, Pastor? We love for the marginalized to serve as collector's items for us to show off and brag about. See, in evangelical culture, having one black person at your church is considered reconciliation. I'm not kidding. I had a lady tell me and my wife, 
that a place was diverse. And there was one person of color in the place. One. I'm not joking. And, and even worse, it's considered diversity when you have one representative from a different ethnicity in your church, even if they are of the same culture as you. See, we, we miss culture for ethnicity. We automatically think because a person is a different color than us, then that automatically means that we have a different culture around us. But the reality is, is that Jim, he is just as enculturated and assimilated as you are in the world. And you having him inside of your church doesn't really make a difference at all because he is of the same culture as you are. And Jesus called in Revelation chapter 7, there are really all types of tongues, tribes, creeds, cultures, nations, all gathered together as one, worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we got to stop this pretentiousness. We got to stop collecting the marginalized and bragging like we've done something because we've helped little Johnny out in his after school program. And now little Johnny and Jahim, they're reading better because I've spent time with them. We got to stop that. It's displeasing to the Lord. It says here that what David had done concerned the Lord. See, it says to be concerned, it says that in his eyes and in his sight, it didn't seem right to the Lord. So we've got to stop this pretentiousness. And the, soon turn around, he says this, he said, the dismantling of privilege requires the disavowal of any pretense of exceptionalism. We have to stop this pretentiousness as if we are somehow better than those who find themselves in marginalized situations just because we got a good shake in life. God says, no, I care about the poor just as much as I care about those who got money. Jesus cares about those who are marginalized just like he cares about those who have privilege. See, God can see our hearts and he knows what's really in our hearts. And when the time of mourning had ended, David, the, I'm sorry, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Hear this. David's name means beloved. But he did not live up to what his name meant. His acts towards Uriah and Bathsheba were not loving at all. And the same is true for us as it relates to the marginalized. We don't live up to our name as Christians. Meaning, we don't live up to the way that Christ lived his life with the marginalized. We don't elevate the marginalized above ourselves. We don't defend the poor and the powerless, and we don't reveal the unrighteousness of some of the most powerful people in society because we're too scared of losing our privilege and our comfort. 
But Jesus was so bent on giving up all of his privilege and all of his comfort and all of everything that he had so that he could live, so that he could present a life to the marginalized that was more abundant than the life that they were currently living. So, the Lord considered it to be evil. And this doesn't just mean that it was an unfortunate series of events. Like that show. What, Neil, what's his name? Neil Patrick Harris. It's not just an unfortunate series of events. God considers this to be evil. And our inability and unwillingness to live up to our name as believers, as Christians, is displeasing to the Lord. And he considers it to be broken religion. James chapter 1 says that pure religion and undefiled religion before God, the Father, is this. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We must care for orphans by speaking out against the reasons why they're orphaned. We must care for widows by lamenting the cause of their marginalization. Some of the orphans in our communities are orphans because their fathers were just snatched away from them for petty crimes. And if they had the ability to have a lawyer, they would be out and being around for their kids. All the while, they committed those petty crimes trying to take care of their kids. That's not always the case, but sometimes that's the case. I came across this quote, and it rocked me, by Napoleon. He said that religion is what keeps the marginalized from murdering the privileged. We've got to see it. I've talked to us about this in the hidden faith. We, we have one sermon about the hidden faith of the marginalized. We've got to see that those who have been in marginalization in, in, in communities like ours, there has been one thing holding them together, and it's been their faith in the Lord Jesus. And we don't see that because we look at their community and we see trash all over the place. And we look over their community and we see violence happening. And we look in their community and we see people running all over the place. But what we don't see is we don't see Big Mama upstairs in the room, in the closet, praying for her kids and her grandkids that they would come to know Jesus and they would stop the foolishness that's happening all around in their community. But here's the beauty, the beauty of this passage. And I'm, I'm, I'm coming to an end. As we read the story of David's wickedness, we are at the same time reading the story of God accomplishing his purpose. See, it says in Matthew chapter 1 that David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. See, the scriptures don't let us forget the scriptures don't let us forget that, yes, what, ha- what was birthed through sin and what was birthed through marginalization, excuse me, he's going to use for his glory in the end. 
See, the thing that God, that, that, that happened to you, and I want to encourage you today, that the thing that happened to you in your past, the thing that's happening to you currently, God wants to use that in your life for his glory to proclaim his great name. And David would one day father Solomon through the source where he had committed sin with this woman. But the good news was that David would repent of that sin when Nathan came to him and told him, he says, you are the man. You are the one who committed this grave sin. And David will end up repenting. Will we turn and repent when the finger is pointed at us and is told to us that we are the reason for the marginalization of those in our community because we turned a blind eye to them? The line of the Messiah is opened, through, opened up through David's wickedness and Bathsheba's marginalization. So you don't got to worry about what's happening in your life because God is working out his redemptive purposes in your life. You may not know it yet, but God is working on your behalf. And it might not seem like it, but God is working it out according to his purposes. I'm going to close with this. At a gathering of friends at an English estate, it nearly turned to tragedy when one of the children strayed into the deep water. And the gardener, the simple gardener, heard the cries for help. And he plunged in and he went and rescued the drowning child. The youngster's name was Winston Churchill. And his grateful parents asked the gardener what they could do to reward him. He hesitated and then said, I wish my son could go to college someday and become a doctor. Churchill's parents promised, we will see to it. Years later, while Winston Churchill was prime minister of England, he was stricken with pneumonia. The country's best physician, physician at that time was summoned. His name was Dr. Alexander Fleming, the man who discovered and developed penicillin. He was also the son of the gardener who had saved young Winston from drowning all those years ago. Later, Churchill remarked, rarely has one man owed his life twice to the same but I'm here to let you know that some 2,000 years ago, a man named Jesus gave up his life for us. And in return, we owe him our lives. But he would die once for us so that we might live twice. He died so that we could have fullness of life here on the earth and eternal life in heaven. Therefore, we owe him our life twice. We must give our life to him and to his purposes. And we must give up our lives towards the proclamation of his name to others. Maybe you're here today and you don't know about that Jesus, the one who went to the cross and died for your sins. I want to invite you today to a relationship with Jesus. The one who gathers us from our marginalization 
and draws us in to himself. Jesus would make the great trek from heaven. He would rend himself of all of his privilege, all of the comforts of heaven, so that he could come, live a perfect life, die, be raised from the grave on the third day, according to the scriptures, and offer new life to men and women just like you and me. Jesus' name.